And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Keith Law, welcome to episode 84 of the Keith Law Show. My guest today is going to be union labor lawyer Eugene Friedman to talk about his thoughts on the current status of the MLB owner lockout of the players and the not very productive negotiations between the two sides. Some administrative stuff first. By Tuesday, February 15th, all of my prospect rankings will be available on The Athletic for subscribers. The AL East will be the last of the six divisions to go up with a full team org report, including a top 20 prospects ranking for each organization in baseball. All six divisions are up. My ranking of the top 100 prospects in all of baseball, as well as those who just missed, those are already up. And my ranking of all 30 farm systems from best to worst is also up. In case you didn't get that, everything's up. And now I sleep. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Eugene Friedman. He is a union labor lawyer. He is currently counsel to the president of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. He also tweets and writes extensively about labor relations in baseball. You can follow him and should follow him on Twitter at Eugene Friedman, E-U-G-E-N-E-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. Eugene, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me on, Keith. So... Let's just start from the basics. Where, from your uh, outsider perspective, especially after the the back and forth sort of that occurred this weekend, where do you think we are in terms of? I mean, if you want to assess the likelihood of a deal, that's fine. I, I imagine it's a bit of a fool's errand. But in terms of the two sides' kind of publicly stated positions and whether we're seeing any sort of movement or do you feel like what's happening is more posturing on one side give us kind of the executive summary of where you think stands between the players association and the league right now sure um the i think one of the biggest things uh, that people have to consider is that the lockout is a management tactic mm -hmm. uh, it is completely within their control uh the the owners and likely with the commissioner's recommendation decided to lock the players out to uh, create leverage uh, in the bargaining process um in so doing uh they really didn't create any economic pressure yet because the players only begin to be paid on opening day um and so there's really not pressure uh mm -hmm. yet uh, other than the players want to get to camp because they know how important it is for them to um, get in shape before the season. Um, you know, we've had two shortened spring trainings, one shortened season, um, and those have, you know, greatly affected players in terms of health and, and outcomes throughout the season. So, so I guess that is a, a, pressure, but it's not a significant pressure because nobody's losing a paycheck. Right. Um, but the other piece of it is, you know, when management 
implemented its lockout, the commissioner said the purpose of the lockout was to jumpstart negotiations. And then his side promptly took 43 days off. <laughs> so I don't know how that really jumpstarted anything. Um, you know, I saw it as a Christmas vacation that they granted themselves. But, you know, they could have done the lockout, you know, January 15th. If mm-hmm. They had no intent of doing anything in those uh, those days between the expiration of the CBA and their next proposal. Um, the other the other aspect of it is uh, each time that the parties have gotten together, uh, the Players Association has responded with a proposal relatively quickly, mm-hmm. um, sometimes three days, sometimes the next day mm-hmm. uh, after management's proposal. This time, I think it was maybe 16 days between management uh, receiving the union's last proposal and the latest proposal, during which time they said, oh, we need a federal mediator. Yep. Uh, they also said, um, we want the uh, Secretary of Labor involved. Uh, they also said, we're not making a proposal. Um, and then ultimately, they did make a proposal. So uh, the foot dragging doesn't really correspond very accurately with the commissioner's statements. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, in in viewing it from the outside, I would say any kind of pressure to make a deal is not coming from management. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not telling their own team to make proposals quickly. They're not uh, telling their own team to make proposals that actually cover the interests of the Players Association. You know, I I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with positional bargaining where, you know, you have a position, you're going to argue for that position. The other side's going to argue for their position. And at some point you may meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's to an extent what the parties are doing here. There's another way to look at bargaining. And we've done this uh, in a number of uh, negotiations uh, with my union and the FAA, which is called interest-based bargaining where you describe your interests to the other party mm-hmm. um, and then you listen to their interests and then you try to make proposals that meet both interests mm-hmm. rather than taking a position and staking it out. You know, that works when you have a collaborative relationship. It doesn't work when you don't. And based on what happened in 2020 with the restart negotiations, it's very clear they don't have a collaborative relationship right now. Um <laughs> That said, they still have to address each other's interests for the other side to make an agreement. Mm -hmm. The union has repeatedly made proposals that include management's two big interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first being the competitive balance tax. Uh, The tax uh, sunset in the last CBA, Mm -hmm. um, normally terms and conditions of employment uh, over mandatory subjects, which under the law are wages, hours, and uh, terms and conditions of employment carry over mm-hmm. when a CBA expires. And the competitive balance tax, uh, because it ties into salary, which is wages, right. um, would be a mandatory subject to bargain. The thing about it is it sunset explicitly. Mm-hmm. So it expired, uh, I believe it was on the last day of the regular season this mm-hmm. past year. And because of that, it wouldn't carry over. Right. So when Major League Baseball locked out the players, essentially what it was doing was saying, we're not going to continue to sign free agents in a period where, you know, we don't have a competitive balance tax. 
association could say, we don't want the tax back. That could be their position. They haven't done that. They've made proposals that include a competitive balance tax. They've also included proposals that expand the playoffs, which is a huge revenue generator. And it's something that uh, management really wants in these negotiations. So the union is, is at least attempting to meet management's interests. Whereas management has said, no, we're not changing the Super 2 status. We're not changing arbitration eligibility from the status quo, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the union's main interests. Right. You know, one of the interests the union dropped by withdrawing its proposal was uh, earlier free agency. And so it saw that that was going nowhere and it, it withdrew that proposal. Yep. But, you know, that interest of earlier arbitration eligibility Mm-hmm. Not only does it affect, you know, when players uh, get a more market-related salary. Right. Obviously, it's not their true market salary because or there aren't multiple teams bidding on their services. Mm-hmm. Uh, but arbitration kind of was developed as a, a as a way to create a similar market, right. um, you know. And I think in this case. You know, going through the early period of of collective bargaining between the union and management and baseball, uh, they did have it at two years. Uh, It changed in the early 80s to make it three years. Mm -hmm. And then they've developed this Super 2 process uh, since then. Yeah. Um, And the Super 2 process did grow uh, in the last CBA. I think it went from something like, and I don't know the percentages off the top of my head. You may know better than I. It was one sixth in the old system. I don't remember okay. how much it increased to how much of players. Right, right. I think it's now at about twenty three percent. Okay. Um, so, what whatever it is, it, it's it's gone up a little bit. And the mm-hmm. question is, where do you divide that? Where do you set the service time eligibility for arbitration? And how do you count service time? That's right. another thing the players' association has stated is a major interest. Uh, to avoid the service time manipulation that Chris Bryant and others have dealt with. Yep. Um, so I think management has on several occasions say, say we're not addressing those issues. Mm-hmm. We're refusing to address them. Um, and so it's not attempting to figure out solutions to meet the interests of the players association, whereas the players association is trying to meet the interests of of the the league. And I think whether you uh, believe the proposals themselves are reasonable regarding the number of teams in the playoffs, regarding where the competitive balance tax threshold is, the players have said, we're willing to discuss those questions. And management hasn't been willing to discuss the questions the union has brought forward. And so, you know, between that and the delays, right. <laughs> it doesn't seem that management has yet become serious about attempting to reach an agreement. So I'd love to delve on that a little bit more, especially in the context of terms that we see a lot and that I've even used a little bit myself, which sort of makes me uncomfortable because I worry I'm using them incorrectly. But you see a lot of referrals to one side or the other, not negotiating in good faith or, or perhaps negotiating in good faith. And you had a tweet the other day where you quoted a tweet from John Heyman that said MLB understood its proposal carried no hope to facilitate a deal in days. And you 
uh, quoted that and said, management is still not taking this seriously. They have no intention to reach agreement quickly, if at all. So from a legal perspective, though, what do those terms mean? Do they have real meaning? What does it mean to say someone is or is not negotiating good faith? And how might that affect these negotiations going forward or whether they even bring in a third party to try to assist the two sides in coming to a deal? Sure. So the duty to bargain in good faith uh, is in the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and I don't want to go too deeply into the <laughs> act or, or its jurisprudence, but basically it says for those subjects that I described as mandatory subjects, mm-hmm. uh, the duty attaches. So wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. Mm-hmm. There are things that are considered permissive subjects of bargaining, uh, where one side or the other can just refuse to negotiate over them. Um, and an example of that is benefits for managers. So, you know, the Players Association can negotiate, and it's mandatory subject to bargaining, to negotiate over the per diem and hotel-related expenses for players uh, when they're in travel status. It's permissive to negotiate over what happens to the coaching staff. So the Players Association could say, we're proposing that uh, coaches and managers get the same benefits or no more than uh, what the players get when they're traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and management can just say, no, we refuse to negotiate over that. And because it's permissive, there's no duty to bargain. There's no there's no requirement to bargain in good faith to try to reach agreement. And so it's an unfair labor practice if either party refuses to bargain in good faith. Now, the, the standard that the National Labor Relations Board and really the regional directors who, who have authority to issue complaints, uh, they use a totality of the circumstances test. Now, there are certain things that are bright lines. Um, if you refuse to meet at reasonable times and places. Um, and so if management just says, we're not meeting with the union, that would be an indicia of bad faith. That's not happening here. They're, they're going slowly they're at least making some attempts to reach agreement. But, mm-hmm. you know, my, my thought is that their proposals aren't very serious because they haven't addressed any of the union's interests. Um, and, you know, there is a concept, um, and it's actually an interesting case name, so I'll, I'll mention it. Mm-hmm. It's called A1 King Size Sandwiches. <laughs> and uh, in that case, um, the the board and ultimately um, a, a U.S. Court of Appeals uh, ruled on this uh, question called surface bargaining, mm-hmm. uh, where you kind of on the surface look like you're bargaining. You're meeting and conferring, you're making proposals, but your proposals really have no intent to reach agreement. Sounds familiar. Um, yeah. So that... Um, and I, I mean, the, the, the case has a lot of proposals listed in it and what management refused to bargain over, you know, the things that they basically said, we're not negotiating over this, but even though it's a mandatory subject, uh, you have to waive your right over this question and we get to set it unilaterally. Those type of things were in management's proposal in that case. So it's not completely analogous. Uh, but uh, the idea is you can play with your food and pretend to bargain, but if you're not actually uh, making good faith proposals with an attempt to reach agreement, it is still uh, not bargaining in good faith, meeting the statutory standard. Uh, now, what is the remedy? You kind of asked, you know, what? How did? How does the government get involved? Or third parties get involved? And you know, in, in these cases, 
usually there's no real remedy other than a bargaining order from mm-hmm. the National Labor Relations Board. Um, so if management is not bargaining in good faith, but it hasn't done anything necessarily harmful to employees, like in 94 and 95, it unilaterally imposed a salary cap and other work rules on the employees after not reaching impasse, mm-hmm. uh, which we can go into that if you'd like in more detail. But essentially, Judge Sotomayor, after the, the regional director filed a case in uh, to require bargaining uh, and to restore the status quo ante, the Judge Sotomayor, who's now Justice Sotomayor on the Supreme right. Court, said, uh, yes, the parties were not at impasse. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the absence of impasse, management is not authorized to unilaterally impose its last best offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in finding the, the unilateral imposition uh, and failure to bargain in good faith, uh, she restored the last CBA. And then the parties basically played two full seasons under the expired agreement mm-hmm. uh, before they reached a new agreement. So that could happen here. If mm-hmm. management lifted the lockout, the parties can continue under the last agreement that expired, I guess, December 1st of, of last year. And all of the terms and conditions uh, would remain in full force and effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they could, they could move forward there. Uh, so the, the board is an option, uh, filing a, a charge and then hoping that the regional director agrees with you and issues a complaint. Mm-hmm. And then that the general counsel agrees that the regional director should seek an injunction in federal court. So there's a lot of steps there. The other option, and this is the one that that management sought a couple of weeks ago, was to get a federal mediator involved from the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service. And uh, that is another separate government agency. It's an independent agency, so neither the NLRB nor FMCS are under the Department of Labor. Mm-hmm. they're They're independent with their own directors or or uh, chairman. And the FMCS, has uh, the ability, uh, when voluntarily agreed to by both parties, uh, to send a mediator who has experience negotiating or or mediating disputes between negotiating parties uh, to try to help them bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, mediation is voluntary in the private sector. Uh, well, under National Labor Relations Board law, it's it's a little bit different for uh, rail and air transportation, uh, but we can set that aside. Right. <laughs> and then it's it's even different uh, for federal sector uh, unions, uh, such as mine with the FAA. Mm-hmm. But uh, for, for these private sector uh, non-transportation uh, <laughs> industry, uh, what basically happens is, you know, the FMCS comes in, a lot of their regional, their uh, assignments are on a regional basis, uh, mm-hmm. unless it's a national contract with heightened importance or heightened visibility. This mm-hmm. probably in this case they send someone who has more seasoning. Scott Beckenbaugh is is a good example. He's done a lot of these national CBAs, not just in sports, but but other industries as well. Uh, but he did mediate NHL dispute uh, during their negotiations. I don't know how many CBAs ago, may have been one or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically cajoles, reasons with, mm-hmm. um, and pressures the parties with no real authority behind that pressure, other than pointing out what the weaknesses are in their own arguments, uh, especially if they're positional, as well as the the 
potential losses that they're suffering uh, by reminding them that it's better to reach agreement because ultimately they will have to reach agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, The parties have this duty that underlies everything uh, just because there's a lockout or a strike or some other economic warfare doesn't, doesn't take away the duty to bargain. Uh, It still exists. And, and those are just levers of power to help reach agreement by putting pressure on the other side. In this case, as I said, there is no pressure yet. Uh, The players will get their salaries beginning opening day, if there is an opening day. Right. Uh, And management will start losing revenue as soon as the first spring training game is lost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a significant amount of revenue, I assume, in spring training. But, you know, they're probably not selling as many season tickets, uh, advanced sales, things like that. Mm -hmm. And presumably on opening day, they will have to start rebating some of their regional sports network contracts, which is a more significant source of revenue, especially for teams like the Dodgers, Yankees, Blue Jays, who have really lucrative agreements. Uh, You know, some of the teams uh, are more in the 45 to $50 million range, not in the 100 plus million dollar, or mm-hmm. even I think the Dodgers are close to 200 million, if yeah. not over. Yep. Um, but you know, the, those losses uh, will start adding up, and and some of the franchises are highly leveraged. Um, they borrowed a lot of money to buy the franchise, or they borrowed a lot of money uh, to buy real estate around the ballpark to develop it. Mm-hmm. Um, and those notes don't suspend uh, just because there aren't games going on. Right. So presumably the pressure will be felt by everybody uh, should games be missed. Mm -hmm. So just to go a little further on one of those points, you mentioned that management requested a federal mediator. The players union would have to agree to that. Both sides have to agree to that. The players union said no. Many people, Mm -hmm. um, and there's certainly plenty of people out there in the media and owners and fans on the fan side who Just support owners, something I'll never really quite understand, but okay. But they say, why would the players say no? Mediators are just good things, right? Mediators come in and they are designed to bring the two sides closer together. I even had people who are mediators weighing in and saying they couldn't understand why the players would say no. So can can you answer that question for us? Why would the players, if they truly are motivated to find a deal here, say no to bringing in a federal mediator? So normally uh, mediation doesn't happen at the early stages of bargaining. Um, and I still consider the parties to be at the early stages. I mean, they, um, they've played footsie with each other. Uh, (laughs) they've kind of, you know, as I mentioned, management hasn't made significant proposals to address the player's interests. And I think, you know, having a mediator there now, um, doesn't really incentivize the, the, manager management side to make good proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it basically says, oh, good, we're stopped. Now we're just going to look for a midpoint. Um, now, mediation doesn't necessarily mean you're going to find the midpoint and that's where everybody's going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still going to most likely reach the same agreement you would in the absence of a mediator, you know, with both parties making good faith efforts. That said, you know, in, in this particular case, I think you know, the union was looking at it from the perspective, last time we had a mediator in 94 and 95, it was all show. 
it was all uh, everybody trying to get credit for reaching an agreement, whether that was President Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, former Secretary of Labor Bill Usury. You, you had people involved who who wanted to be heroes as opposed to wanting the best agreement between the parties. Right. And, you know, I, I don't think that uh, an FMCS mediator would necessarily do that. I'd be concerned um, when there was some talk that Marty Walsh, Secretary of Labor, might get involved uh, because, you know, he'd be looking to check something off on his ledger. Here's a success. I solved this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he was just basically saying exactly what he says in any major negotiation in any industry, whether it's public or, or not. You know, my office is here to help. Um, I hope the parties continue negotiating in good faith to reach a voluntary agreement. Management spun that in a particular way to say, oh, he wants to get involved. Um, I don't think he wants to get involved. Just based on his history, he was uh, the, the president of his uh, LIUNI local, the Laborers International Union of North America in Boston. He became the head of the building trades uh, in Boston, which covers all of the, the trades unions, bricklayers, plumbers, electricians, et cetera, uh, carpenters. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then he ran for mayor of Boston. I mean, he knows not to stick his nose into a labor dispute unless both parties want him involved. Now, I think I just went a little bit far afield of your question, but um, the, the um, you know, in light of the, the past experience and the fact that they're early in the process, it doesn't really help to have a mediator involved. A lot of the time, the mediator will say, will come in when the parties believe they're at impasse. Uh, they can't go any further. And the mediator shows them, hey, I think you have this potential to go a little further here. You Have you thought about these other options? Mm-hmm. Um, have you uh, considered their proposal on this, thinking outside the box? Can you, can you, you know, find any movement? Um, mm-hmm. And can you come up with uh, something that is unique and different from your last agreement that might help bridge the gap here. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things that the mediator can, can help with are really when you're you're saying we're done. We we don't we can't think of any way to right. solve this crisis. Here they're talking. They're talking about all the issues except for the ones management says they won't talk about. Uh, but <laughs> they're they're also they're coming up with new ideas. I mean the the idea of a pool uh, paid uh, out out of uh, joint funding. Uh, from all teams rather than individual teams for players um, who are not yet arbitration eligible. Um, You know, that is something novel and new and the parties are talking about it. Now the question is, when do you qualify? Because that ties into when you're, when are you qualified for arbitration? So how big is the pool of employees that might be splitting this money? And then of course, how much money is in there? Um, those are obviously big contentions between the parties, but it's a novel concept. It's not something that's been in their CBA before. They're making progress over it. I mean, to bring in a mediator now to just say, all right, you're making progress on this issue. Can you take another step in their direction? Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's going to help. It's probably going to slow it down. A lot of mediators uh, struggle with very specific industries. Now, there are some that are great. Um, but, um, you know, if, if they're just used to the negotiations over, 
what your annual increase is going to be and perhaps uh, what your minimum staffing level is going to be and, you know, what the copay is going to be on your uh, healthcare plan for, for in-network and out-of-network. Those are not the issues that baseball deals with. Right. And honestly, they're not the issues that air traffic controllers deal with. And, you know, we, we have a very complex pay system based on volume and complexity of airspace. And we've had mediators before who didn't want to understand it because it was too complicated for them. So, mm-hmm. And specific, you know, right? It's very, very specific, specific yes, to, a, yes. to this one industry. Right, exactly. And so you don't want the wrong mediator in there because they're not going to want to dive into it. And even the right mediator is going to have this learning curve and education period. And during that period, the parties aren't making any progress. So you may be slowing things down for two or three weeks when right now, theoretically, we're in a critical period because spring training is about to be delayed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of like if if you really want to jumpstart the process, bringing in a mediator isn't going to do that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last baseball question. I have that one non-baseball question for you afterwards, but you also had a tweet where you, and you've been going after reporters who are essentially carrying water for ownership, often repeating claims from the league or comments from the league without questioning them. And I agree with you. I think that that's the role of the journalists. We are independent, some of us at least, and we should be doing that. You said that at this point, the only questions reporters should be asking are one, why don't the owners want baseball to be played this year? And two, and this is the one I would like to ask you further about, do you realistically believe you will break the union with this lockout? Do you believe that that's management's goal here, understanding that the history of baseball's labor negotiations since the union began has been ownership trying to break the union. Do you think that's their plan here? Or is their plan more to simply build on the gains that ownership made in the last CBA and try to push that forward using maybe the threat of breaking the union apart as a sort of leverage to get what they really want? So I guess uh, part of it has to do with um, what the term breaking the union means, mm. right? So the way I was using it was not that the union would be decertified and, and cease to exist. Mm. Um, it would be that the union was basically uh, kowtowing to management's demands and no longer a force uh, in the the process of setting wages, hours, and terms and conditions of employment, that it was mm-hmm. really management's control and the union was there just as, as a backstop, but not a forward-looking uh, party. Now, it, as you said, historically, 
that's been the goal of management. I mean, they, they have, um, in, in baseball, mm-hmm. um, you know, tried to break the union, um, you know, and when they've been unsuccessful, they've tried to violate the CBA uh, to to uh, retard or reduce salary growth. Uh, the mm-hmm. collusion years uh, is is a great example of that. Uh, they tried to unilaterally impose a salary cap in two thousand four. Yep. Uh, so you have you have all of these historical markers where management has really tried to break the union. Now, in this case, I think. Um, that you have a lot of new owners. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have, and I said 2004, uh, I, I meant 1994, right, 1994 right. and yes. 95. I was, I was actually confusing it with the time FAA tried to break our union. Ah, uh, yes. so, <laughs> a second time as it were uh, for air traffic controllers. Um, so, um, you know, in, in this case, um, you know, you have so many owners have turned over they haven't been part of this long-term relationship. Um, even the commissioner hasn't been part of it going back before the 94, 95 strike. Now he knows the history of it, sure. um, but you know, the other owners, many of them probably don't know the history. Uh, mm-hmm. Peter Angelos, who's been more pro player in the past, he refused to field a team of uh, replacement players in 1995. He's kind of taken a step back. He's older now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how his sons who are running the team, uh, you know, would treat uh, something like that. Now uh, the Steinbrenner family obviously has turned over. I think George was a very um, pro free agent uh, type of owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I'll spend what I want um, and you'll just have to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas his sons seem more content making a profit uh, than you know, trying to buy a winner. Uh, now the Yankees still spend a lot, but they're they're happy with the competitive balance tax. It keeps their payroll costs low or yeah. lower than they would otherwise be, and it keeps their competitors' labor costs lower than they would otherwise be. Uh, so you have you have that now. You have Steve Cohen, who may take the the, the same role that uh, George Steinbrenner used to take, mm-hmm. uh, because he's gone way above the threshold. Uh, And the lockout froze him out. Uh, It kept him from signing Carlos Correa or any other top free agents. Um, And uh, it locked him out, locked the Dodgers out, um, you know, from signing free agents. And and I think that was really part of the goal. With no CBT, we got to stop them. But going back to the the question itself, I think the the owners want uh, an agreed upon restricted salary while at the same time, an unrestricted revenue stream. Um, And to achieve both of those. Don't we all? Yes. Well, and I think think that would be really breaking the union. If the union agreed, yes, you can have all of these new revenue streams and not have to put them back into player salaries. Right. Because you're raising the competitive balance tax from 210 to 212 or 214. Uh, Meanwhile, the, um, I think Maury Brown reported uh, that uh, national TV revenues are going up 30% this year Mm -hmm. uh, between all of the the different agreements they have. Um, So, you know, and you're adding in all this gambling revenue 
uh, from gambling partners uh, mm-hmm. in ballparks uh, or partners, you know, with the TV uh, package, things like that. You have all of these new areas of revenue that the players aren't really seeing, especially if the competitive balance tax is not raised significantly or if the uh, tax rates remain as high as they are now or in in the proposal that Major League Baseball is basically doubling the, the tax rates mm-hmm. uh, to make them all much more penalizing if teams go over them. So, you know, if management's proposals are all accepted, I would consider the union broken at that point. Now, they're not going to agree to those things. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they have made it clear they want a higher CBT. They want higher minimum salaries. They want earlier access to free agency, which they've given up. They want earlier access to arbitration. In order to give management what it wants, a CBT and and expanded playoffs, management's going to have to give them something. Right. And the something isn't a 10% increase on the league minimum when – as I said, revenues are going up 30% on national television. The players' proposal, I think, may have been I, – I, I rarely criticize the union, but I think they may have been premature putting expanded playoffs on the table and putting a CBT back on the table because management has not yet taken them seriously mm-hmm. uh, about their own demands in this. Uh, had they said, we'll consider expanded playoffs, but we're not going to make a proposal until we've moved on these other issues that are critical to us. Mm-hmm. Um, now management basically thinks, hey, we're already getting those things. The union has proposed something. It, it may have even proposed something on the, on the playoffs that they're willing to accept. Uh, we just don't know it. Um, and so management thinks it's got the, their two big asks in the bag already, Mm-hmm. While they haven't given the union anything on uh, new things, and and interestingly enough, I've seen it framed from a lot of writers that the union is the one who wants to make major changes to the agreement. That's yep. actually not true. They mm-hmm. both want to make major changes: one in the area of increased salaries, one in the area of increased revenue. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. I'm always hopeful that there will be a, a voluntary agreement that benefits both parties. I think you can't negotiate CBAs and think we're not going to reach agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to kind of have that in your mind. And, um, you know, from my perspective, there is an opportunity to reach an agreement here. I just hope that it's sooner rather than later. Yep. I, I hope so too, but I would uh, hope that it is on terms that are, uh, acceptable to the players um, and that maybe reverse some of the gains that the owners made in the last CBA. My final question for you, uh, we share an affinity for the music of Prince. So what is, you can say your favorite Prince song or perhaps a, a Prince song that you think is underappreciated, but give everyone one, because I will say when people ask me about my Prince fandom, I kind of lean towards the hits. It makes me a little bit of a boring Prince fan, but in his case, I think the hits were the hits because they're some of the best songs ever recorded. So what's your, your go-to? So, um, you know, the catalog is so broad. Uh, yes. It's hard to say. And growing song. Uh, yes. Yes. Although I, I can tell you, I had a lot of uh, those things as bootlegs, bootlegs that have been recently released. Sure. Um, but I, my favorite song is Joy and Repetition, mm. uh, which is off of Graffiti Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he performed it live a lot. Um 
beginning in, I guess, around 2003, 2004. The, the concert series he did uh, after the Rainbow Children was released, he, I, I've, I've got at least four different versions that he uh, rearranged, depending mm-hmm. on who was in the band uh, and how he wanted to perform them at that particular concert. Uh, so that's, that's my favorite song, but an album uh, that I that hasn't been released, but I think that everybody should listen to is The Undertaker, mm. um, which he did with, I think it was uh, Michael Bland uh, was the drummer and Sonny T played bass. It was just three of them. They recorded it and video recorded it in a straight through performance oh, of wow. maybe six or seven songs on his soundstage um, at Paisley Park. Um, and you can you can watch the the video of it um, on YouTube. You can find it. I think it's usually broken up into a number of different different um, videos. So there's probably like four parts to it. But it's um, you know a lot of the songs are un, unreleased otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Undertaker is just incredible. It's it's him um, showing more his guitar prowess than mm-hmm. than. He frequently did on his release tracks of that time period, which were, which were more, um, I think, bass and drum oriented uh, in in that mid '90s period. So, I, yeah, I would I would recommend everybody check out the Undertaker. I have just pulled it up. I found it on YouTube. I will be listening to it later today. My guest today has been Eugene Freeman. Uh, he is a union labor lawyer, and you should follow him on Twitter at Eugene Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. He, his voice is invaluable in deciphering what is going on now in the labor dispute and within baseball, including management's lockout of the players. Eugene, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Keith, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back to a mostly weekly schedule going forward. I know the major league season is probably not going to start on time, but the amateur season has already begun. We are going to see high school players, college players all getting underway, some junior colleges uh, highlighted by Cam Collier at Chipola Junior College in Florida. They're already underway, so there will be stuff for me to see even if the major leagues aren't playing, so stay tuned here. Follow me on Twitter at Keith Law, or just look for me on The Athletic. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.